You're listening to sermons from Church on Bayshore in Niceville, Florida. Our mission is to do whatever it takes to see people believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who God created them to be, impacting the world for Christ. To learn more about our church and to find additional resources, including ways to connect, serve, and give, visit churchonbayshore.org. Thank you, Laura, and thank you to those who are serving God in many different ways, and I just want to encourage you uh, in two things that you can do uh, that we are looking for people to serve uh, right now. One is our tutoring ministry at El- Edge Elementary School. Uh, they are still in new- need of tutors, and you can... Um, Find out more information about that on our website or, or on the bulletin, uh, in the bulletin, uh, or just ask one of our Connect team members. Uh, another thing is our foster crews, that's C-R-E-W-S, not C-R-U-I-S-E. Uh, those are different things. Uh, they will uh, be having an informational meeting today at lunch. Uh, and so if you're interested in learning how you can be involved in serving uh, our foster families and their kiddos, uh, I would encourage you to attend that. In addition to uh, the things that we we are doing as a church body uh, to see the kingdom grow. One of the things that we prioritize is partnering with other churches. And we do this uh, through revitalizing other churches, helping churches get strengthened, and then also through planting new churches. We are currently plant, uh, supporting Anchor Church uh, in Freeport. We're in our third year of our five-year commitment to them. We're in our first year of our commitment to one community church in New York City. And uh, we are uh, beginning a partnership with Pillar Church in Crestview, which is launching uh, next month. And their pastor, Alex Chapman, will be with us here uh, in two weeks. He'll be bringing the word of God. And then that day, they are hosting a informational lunch for anyone who might be interested in learning how they can be a part of supporting Pillar Church in Crestview. And so just as I did with Anchor Church, I encourage those who might live in Crestview or who might just be sensing God leading them to do something to consider making a one-year commitment uh, to uh, helping that church get off the ground. Now, some of you may stay there indefinitely, but if they can have some others who come alongside their core team and help them uh, to get the church church launched uh, to increase the kingdom of God, it will be of great benefit. And so if you're interested in that, uh, I would encourage you to attend that lunch uh, two weeks uh, from today. If you are here today for the first time or you're watching online for the first time, as a church family, we are so grateful that you are with us and we would love to know who you are. I would encourage you to text the word connect to the number that you see on the screen and one of our team members will reach out to you uh, and will let you uh, find out how you can uh, be involved in the life of our church and also give you the opportunity to ask questions that you might have. Well, as a church, we are walking slowly through the letter of Ephesians. You can turn to chapter four if you have a Bible with you. In the first part of this chapter, Paul writes about what it takes for growth. Thus, we have titled our teaching series uh, in these verses, Growing Up. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter four, to walk worthy of our calling. Verses one through three. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he reminds us of the oneness of our faith, this unity we have. Verse four, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. 
And you can go back and listen to the last two week sermons where we walk through those verses. Today, we are going to look at verses seven through 14, where Paul places our attention on how God calls us to equip others and how he uses others to equip us. Beginning in verse seven. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes." I have another birthday coming up this week. When you get my age, you start to say it like that, like another, because they keep coming like faster and faster, like waves on the beach, and I'm just grateful none of them have knocked me down up until this point. Each birthday causes me to reflect on how far I still have to go, but also how far God has brought me. And something <clears throat> I am very mindful of is how people have played a part in me maturing. And I have a longing with each year to be used in the same way in the lives of others that God has used people in my life. And as we talk about growing up in Christ, we need to recognize the way that God uses people's gifts to equip us and the way that God wants us to use our gifts to equip others. So I, I think we should start here, there's, there's so much here. I, I think we should start with examining the roles that are mentioned here because some of you won't be able to fully listen to anything else I say until I talk about that. So let's start with verse 11. Verse 11 tells us that he, God, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now, as most of you know, this verse comes with debate. So let's look at each of these roles to inform us on these debates. Let's begin with apostles, apostolos, sent ones, a delegate, a messenger. That's what that word means. There are three common views about the role of apostle. The first is that the apostles were the disciples and a few others who followed quickly in the birth of the new church. Uh, in the Bible, uh, we see um, that you had the 12 disciples, and it's almost commonly understood that those 12 disciples were apostles. And then Judas, of course, betrays Jesus, and Matthias replaces Judas. And then you have the apostle Paul, who's recognized as an apostle and wrote a lot of the New Testament. And so the only evidence in the Bible that apostleship extends past them is Barnabas. That's the only reference. That's in Acts 14, verse 14. And so I'll tell you that I used to lean uh, towards this idea that there are um, many apostles, right? Because the, the other views of apostleship would be um, <clears throat> that it's just, there's many apostles uh, throughout the church, throughout uh, the world. And then the other, the third view would be that <clears throat> there are a few apostles 
who are ahead of the global church. And so that has to then bring this view of uh, the church needs to be united in its organization. You see that in Catholicism. You see that in certain branches within Christianity. And so I used to lean towards this idea that there were many apostles out there, sent ones out there. But what I would just say from reading the Bible and the just lack of evidence of that role being carried beyond uh, Barnabas and Paul here is, and then, and then combined with the idea that really any authority uh, on scripture needs to come. Oh, oh sorry, thank you. <laughs> Bro, our relationship just about took on a new <laughs> level. All right, so I don't even know what I was saying at this point. So um, somebody who disagrees with me, like, see, that's, the, oh, never mind, okay. Anyway, so, so what I would say is that there's not biblical evidence. I'm not saying it's not true just based on this, but there's not biblical evidence for the role of apostle extending past these individuals. And then if you look at what Paul tells us before this, he's saying that the uh, church work, the work of the church needs to be built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so I, I believe that the apostles were the ones who God used to start the church. And so the, the role of apostle is not in play today. I, I will say this. I'm okay with the difference of opinion on this issue. However, I would just warn you of some things. So mostly when people begin to emphasize the role of apostle, there is a desire for authority and there is a focus on title. And even those who really emphasize that title. And Jesus told us, don't have anyone call you rabbi or teacher. He said, don't have anyone call you that. So people ask me all the time, do I call you pastor? Do I call you brother, reverend, whatever? And I'm like, call me whatever you want. And that sometimes doesn't work out so well, but mostly uh, it's okay. And the reason I say this, because Jesus said, don't have anyone call you this position. And I would just say, if someone is like, hey, this is my title, you need to call me this. They're not following Jesus in that. It's very plain and clear in the scripture. And I would say that that's connected with this desire to be off base and elevate ourselves to this authority in this position. So in summary, I would say that while there's some room and I can be charitable here, I think that the Bible really points us to the apostles being the ones who started the church of the New Testament. So let's, let's move on to prophets. So how about prophets? And then I, I would be clear here in saying there's also prophecy mentioned in the New Testament. So apostleship isn't really mentioned as a gift, but prophecy is mentioned as a gift. So are they the same thing? Like if you prophesy, are you then a prophet? Well, there are actually only two clear passages of scripture that speak of prophets in the church in the present tense in the New Testament. Acts chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas are sent out with Simeon, Lucius, and Menean, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when they're giving, it's giving instructions on prophecy. And so there's only these two mentions of the role in the New Testament church. There's other prophets, and we'll get to that in just a second. And one of those is a part of the church being sent out to reach the Gentiles. So I think we need to understand that. Now, I will say very clearly, prophecy is a gift that I believe still exists today. But would you call someone who has the gift of healing a healer? Some, some do, but very few people would actually do that. He's a healer over there. She's a healer over there. And I, and I think when you pay close attention to the way that the gifts are given, 
They're not necessarily one person has this one gift all the time. Now, prophecy is a gift to be pursued. Let's be clear about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse one. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So Paul says, want to be a prophet. Want to be someone who God uses to speak his word boldly to encourage or challenge other people. But that doesn't mean it has to look like what we often see abused in extreme charismatic movements that emphasize the prophet. If you read through 1 Corinthians 14, you see a lot of instructions on worship. But I'm gonna go to verse 31 through 33. It says this, for you can all prophesy one by one so that you all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So there are some other instructions on gifts in this passage that you might wanna check out. But let me just show you something here in verse 31 through 33. First, it says, prophesy one by one. Okay, so multiple people are prophesying. So what Paul's instructing is not this place where people go to hear the prophet and what the prophet might have to say. And then it also says, so all may learn and be encouraged. So one, this has happened to me multiple times, but I was working at Starbucks like 15 years ago, and this lady walks into me, finds out I'm a Christian, and says, I'm gonna prophesy over you. You're gonna have a big house, and begins to say all these things to me directly. There is zero, I'm gonna say this very plainly, zero examples in the Bible of an individual prophecy. Zero. It's for all to be encouraged. And so that stuff doesn't exist in the Bible. Let's be very clear about that. And then also, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And so what God is doing in any spiritual gift he's bringing is bringing this unity in the body. Now, I'm gonna be charitable here again and say I understand that there are people who are not going to agree with how I see this. But can I just give you some warning about false prophets because they are talked about in the Old Testament and the New Testament a lot. Four things that the Bible tells us about false prophets. First of all, their prophecies do not come true. If you're into a prophet, and specifically people are usually into end time prophets, and they've ever said anything about cultural events through the lens of the Bible that wasn't true, they are a false prophet. Prophecy isn't like target practice. And maybe we'll hit sometimes and maybe we'll hit others. The Bible says, if you prophesy falsely, you are a false prophet. Now, why would somebody prophesy falsely? Well, the Bible also tells us, Jeremiah chapter 14, that people prophesy from their own delusions of grandeur, of being exalted, of ego, of wanting to feel spiritual. People will prophesy for those reasons. It also tells us in Deuteronomy 13 that false prophets lead people away from the scripture and onto Christ. I don't know if you've ever been a part of uh, one of these churches or movements, but there is a movement amongst a lot of Christian churches to focus more on new revelation than on the revelation of God. That's dangerous and not consistent with what the scripture teaches us. And then lastly, they seek their own gain. There's a lot of personal gratification and edification and prosperity that comes in these movements that people really seek to have. So again, I'm gonna summarize and say, I believe that the role of prophet, the role of prophet was something that was in the days of the scripture, but the prophecy gift is still available and is used today. The next one, evangelist, you and gelistos. That means the bringer of good news. That's a more Southern way of saying it, but this is mentioned three times in the Bible. 
Philip the evangelist. Paul encourages Timothy to do the work of an evangelist and hear. And so anytime the work of an evangelist is mentioned, it's in the bringing of the gospel to a new group of people. Something that is also pretty interesting is it's never mentioned as a gift, evangelism. And so I find it very interesting that in spiritual gift testing, often people are, are described as being an evangelist or the role of an evangelist, but not an apostle or prophet typically. You wanna know why there's that confusion? Because spiritual gift tests are man-made. You don't open your Bible to the back and say, oh, okay, here's where the Holy Spirit gives me the Myers-Briggs of Christianity to figure out what my spiritual gift is. That's not how we discern spiritual gifts. And I would just say evangelism is a call on the life of every Christian to preach the good news so that people might call upon the name of the Lord. And I, I would just also say there's very little biblical evidence that the role of evangelist is still one that's in play. But I'll be even more charitable on this one and say, I see that maybe God does call people to go and reach new groups of people and gifts them in doing that. Okay, last one here, shepherds and teachers. And I'm putting them together because they're under the same article in Greek and should be seen as one. Now, some would say that this is two roles carrying one purpose in the church, and some would say this is one role. Peter O'Brien, who's a biblical scholar, says the pastors and teachers are linked here by a single definite article in the Greek, which suggests a close association of functions between two kinds of ministers who operate within the one congregation. Robert Bractor does say this, the first three roles serve the church at large and the shepherd teacher was at each congregation. And we see these are still in play today because Paul clearly assigns them and gives them qualifications in Titus and 1 Timothy and Peter gives instructions for them in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. So the difference of opinion here again would be on if pastors and shepherds, uh, excuse me, if teachers and shepherds are, are talking about one person or talking about multiple roles in the church. And so, each church should have shepherds caring for the church according to the qualifications of the Bible, but also you see the teaching gift uh, as exercised, not the pastoring gift ever mentioned in the New Testament. So let me say all that to say, we're not gonna, dis we're not gonna agree on everything this morning, and we are not gonna solve everything that the church has debated about these verses this morning or in multiple mornings together, and we can have some conversation about those. I'm happy to do that. But I, but I would just say this, the moving forward, the application for you is this. Tony Merida says it well. While we wrestle with these distinctive positions and gifts, one thing is abundantly clear. God has blessed his people throughout redemptive history with gifted proclaimers of his word. God builds his church by exalting himself through people, by the power of his spirit, so that men will hear the name of Jesus and trust in him and then grow in their trust in him. And the vision for our gifting is the body of Christ being built up. Now Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So he says, we're all together the body of Christ, but each individual is a member of that body. He says, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, see that's part of why I believe the way I believe, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues are all apostles. 
Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And so as we think about spiritual gifts, we should want spiritual gifts. And we should hold on to this reality that God does gift his people as individual members of the body with the following in view. Verse 31. And I will still show you a more excellent way. And if you keep reading, because there's not chapter breaks when Paul wrote, he says in verse one of chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, now if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I'm not sure that Paul was giving specific clarity to the definition of gifts in chapter 12. As much as Paul was just saying, it's clear that the Spirit is working in different ways. And he's very clearly saying, gifts or roles without the aim of love are unprofitable. Gifts or roles without the aim of love are unprofitable. And, and what happens here is the emphasis gets placed sometimes on what is my gift and what is my role over God loves people and God wants to use me for them to know his love. And Paul warns, and you can go and look at this yourself in 1 Timothy to Timothy, that there are those who, who wander away from the essentials without a pure heart, without good conscience, and without sincere faith. And they confidently teach how to live for Christ without actually knowing the word of God. And the emphasis in these moments becomes on the individuals and their exhortation and exaltation and not the body. But look at what verse 12 tells us is the reason that Paul gives, excuse me, that God gives apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The reason people have any role or any gift is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The word equip is only used here in the New Testament, and it comes from a word that refers to mending something. When it says that they mended their nets in the New Testament, that's the root word of equip. And Paul tells us what we're working to see. He says this in chapter two, verse 10, is that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so he says, the people of God are, are his workmanship created for good works, and God is giving people roles in the church to equip them for those works. Not knowledge of ministry, but the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. 
And so what this should look like is not people desiring to hear leaders more and more, but being empowered by the leader's teaching to go and do themselves, or the leader's gifting to go and do themselves. But we are naturally attracted to performance. We're attracted to charisma. We're attracted to talent. We're attracted to intellect. We're attracted to power. And and I think what that might look like shifts from demographic to demographic and personalities to personalities. But what we begin to create is people who are amazed at people's talent, at people's performance. But the church should not be marked by amazement at what someone can do, but amazement at how God is making more, peop- more people into the image of Christ. J.I. Packer once said, what makes something a spiritual gift is not the quality of the performance, but the blessing of God. That's what makes something a spiritual gift. And we cannot mistake talent and gift. I know that those words, talent and gift, are synonymous in culture, but they are not synonymous in the Bible. You see, singing is not a spiritual gift. It's a talent. Well, for me, it's not a talent. But good singing is a talent. And what God does is he uses that talent to be a vehicle for the gift. So someone who sings well, if they're in tune with the Spirit, can encourage others can teach others, but you can sing well, divorced from the Holy Spirit, separated from the Holy Spirit. Speaking in public is a talent. Teaching is the gift, and God might use speaking well as the vehicle for the teaching or the prophecy or whatever it may be. And and so what we tend to do is we tend to gravitate towards the talent and, and, and the reality is, you know, even in churches, we, would, we have a certain, you know, requirement of talent to uh, match certain sizes of churches. But let's just be clear about something. That's not what God's looking at. That's what man is looking at. And the Holy Spirit is working through people who have these gifts, who might not have the talent all of the time. And this is what should be in view regardless of where we are on this talent train until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We should all be asking, what has God given me to build up the body of Christ? And we should be focusing in on that. Knowledge of the Son of God implies more than knowing about the Son of God. It's experiencing the presence and power of the Son of God. And we should remember here, That the calling we have primarily is to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called, salvation. And to be one in Christ and to be working towards that end, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children. God is using us so that people would no longer be children. That word could actually be translated as infants. Two things I would know about infants is they can't feed themselves and they don't clean up after themselves. You, as a maturing Christian, should be able to feed yourself and clean up after yourself. You should be growing. And I would just say that today's church is being marked more and more by people who need others to feed them. 
and who need others to clean up their messes. And you've got the Holy Spirit and you've got the word of God and you should be maturing past that. That doesn't mean that there won't be times that we lean on each other's. But Howard Hayner says about this passage, he says that we should want people to be stable. We should want people to be able to walk and not be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So you have this imagery here of a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And it's not anchored in. And anytime the wind comes and the waves come, it's tossed all over the place. And what, are those wind, what is that wind and what are those waves? Well, it's human cunning. It's craftiness and deceitful schemes. False teachers threaten the churches in Ephesus and they threaten the church today. And spiritual gifts serve to keep us anchored in the word of God, listening to the voice of God. God has given callings and gifts to prepare, protect, and provide for people when voices seek to distract and devour them from growing in the fullness of Christ. I'm gonna read that again. God has given callings and gifts to prepare, protect, and provide for people when voices seek to distract and devour them from growing in the fullness of Christ. God wants to use you to that end. So Kent, let me just say something here now. Don't then let comparison hinder you from being a part of this. Don't live your life as a Christian being primarily motivated by the gifts of others and whether or not you can have those gifts or not. And I think what Paul is really placing our emphasis on is something bigger than that. Look at verse seven. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So again, Paul says, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. He says, eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. He talks about how we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, God who's above all, in all, through all. And then he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, I want you to know that the word gift here is different than what's used in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. So the emphasis here is not on the various gifts that the Holy Spirit gives, but it's on the gift of grace given to us by Christ. He says in verse eight, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Robert Bracter says, this should be translated as the scripture says. So where it says, therefore, it says, it should be understood this way. Anyone who can read in the Bible knows that when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Because what Paul's doing here is he's quoting Psalm 68, verse 18. He's, he appears to be citing this in Aramaic. Psalm 68 is a victory song and Paul is ascribing that to Jesus. It says in Psalm 68, and here, he, he led a host of captives. Literally translated, that is this. He captured captivity. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, there were those who are captive. And Jesus literally captured the idea of people being 
taken captive. Jesus delivered us from captivity. Jesus delivered us from the slave owner. Now here's where I need to stop and just say this to you. Trusting in Jesus is not continuing to live your life the way you're living and bringing him in to make it better. Trusting in Jesus is realizing this. You as a sinner are enslaved to this world. And Jesus has set you free. Set you free from the slavery with which we choose. And I would just suggest this today, that some of us are like a prisoner in a jail cell that has been opened who won't step out because it's comfortable where we are. And Jesus has invited you into freedom. And as we referenced last week, not just as the Savior, he's not still on the cross, as the inhabitant, he has given gifts to men, the text says. He is over all and in all and through all. Verse nine through 10 is parenthetical, but here's what Paul says. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended? Paul says, so if Jesus ascended and Jesus is God, there's nowhere for him to ascend out of heaven, so clearly he had to descend. So what does it mean that he descended into the lower regions, the earth? And, you know, some people think this means that he went to hell combined with 1 Peter chapter 3, and that's where he brought the captives out. Some people don't. In fact, if you look at the earliest creeds, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, one says he went into hell and one says he doesn't, didn't. And so we don't fully know. I mean, people are like, what did he do for that day? And people are like, well, maybe he went to hell. Well, that sounds like a good thing that he did there. And they have some scripture to support it. And I'm not saying they're wrong. We just don't know. There's a song I, I like. Well, we have other reasons we don't sing it now, but uh, back in the day called Ain't No Grave. If you ever heard that song, it sounds really good. And it says he went down to hell. And I told Justin, if we ever sing that, you have to say, he possibly went down to hell. Like when we sing that worship song and he just said, nah, we're not gonna sing it then. But here's what we know. Jesus came down to earth and rescued us and gave us grace. And he has given gifts to men. He is the victorious one who gives us the spoils of war. And so he's invited you not just into the rescue, but to be a part of the rescuing. What a great privilege that God has given us. And that's the great takeaway from the reality that there are roles and gifts is that God's spirit dwells in the lives of his people, every one of them, individually members of it, to be used for this end. Paul Tripp says this, God is rescuing fallen humanity transporting them into his kingdom and progressively changing them into his likeness and he wants you to be a part of it. How great is that? God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, setting them free, changing them to experience who he is and to be like him and he wants you to be a part of him doing that. He invites us into that incredible work. And church, if we believe, if we believe that Jesus is the rescuer, 
that he is the kingdom, that we're not slaves, that we're free, that this world is not our home, it's just temporary, that there will be no sickness, there will be no pain, there will be no death, that God has an answer for every broken marriage, that God has an answer for every broken home, that God has an answer for every disease, that God has an answer for everything, and it's found in Jesus Christ. Why are we not saying, God, use me for that? God, use us for that. That should be the desire of his people. And that should be marked by service. Paul, in Ephesians chapter five, verse one, as he turns the corner here, he says that this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christian service is not about the platform. It's about washing feet. And everything that God gives us, every ability, every talent, every gift, every role, is to serve others. The primary influence on Christian service is that Christ humbled himself so others will be exalted. That's the primary influence on Christian service, that Christ humbled himself so others will be exalted because Christ trusted in the exaltation of God. He descended into the lower regions of the earth and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so might we be marked by descending and serving others because we trust in the rescuer. Church, I hope that the clear takeaway from this text this morning is maybe I don't know what the roles look like today. Maybe I don't know what all the gifts look like today. But here's what I know. Jesus wins. And Jesus has invited me to do his work of building up the body of Christ so that all would see the greatness of him. And so in light of that, I'll serve however you tell me to because you are my Lord and I love you and I'm your child. Obey him in whatever way the spirit is leading you today. Let's pray. Father God, I pray this morning that indeed your Holy Spirit, which is living and active, is speaking to us. God, through the words that were said and through the things that you are uniquely doing in each of us. And God, I pray that people would have courage and strength to lean into not their own power, but your power. People who are discouraged would be lifted up by your spirit. And ultimately the aim of all that we do would be to continually to remind ourselves and our brothers and sisters in Christ and this world that is enslaved that you are victorious. So be exalted now in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.